Morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 15. John chapter number 15. And yes, Bobby, I did move my glass of water. Didn't want your fingers in it like you did last week. Actually, I couldn't tell any difference, but... John chapter 15. Some of you may be here this morning disheartened. You're trying to live as a good Christian, but you find it difficult. And what you've experienced is discouragement and defeat. I heard a story from years ago about a lumberjack who worked in the days when buck saws were used by two men to fell a tree. He heard about a new invention called a chainsaw, which would make his job a lot easier. So he went and purchased the saw, but he had to return it because he was unable to cut any wood with it. He took it to the store where he had purchased it, and he explained his problem. The salesperson took the chainsaw, jerked the cord to start it. The lumberjack was startled. He jumped backwards and said, what is that noise? He was unaware of the power that was available to him. It may be that you're trying to live the Christian life without being connected to the power that is available to you. Now let me set the stage for you. Jesus and his disciples are about to leave the upper room where Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples They've shared a final meal, and now he is walking with them to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will soon pray and later be arrested. By midday of the next day, Jesus will be on the cross. That evening in the upper room ended when Jesus said, rise, let us go from here. So they go down the stairs and out into the night, and the disciples follow Jesus out of the city into the Kidron Valley. In John chapter 15, Jesus begins a discussion of the vineyard. Now, why does Jesus use the vine and its branches as a parable? Some speculate that it's because he and his disciples have just passed by the huge gold grapevine, the symbol of Israel, which decorated the gates of the temple, which some have estimated was worth $12 million in gold and jewels. Or it could be that he and his disciples, as they head out of the city and into the Kindred Valley, see a vineyard there on the side of the hill, readily visible on their walk, And Jesus uses what is close at hand to make his point. I don't know that it matters which is the case. Perhaps both are true. But one thing is for sure, every good Jew understood the image of the vine that had been used many times to describe Israel and its relationship to God. The vineyard portrays God's concern and care for the vineyard and planting his people in the promised land. And in a result, the Lord expected a rich harvest of fruit from the vineyard. The problem was 
that Israel never produced the fruit that the Lord had desired. Through the prophets, the Lord had expressed his displeasure with the fruit that Israel had produced, calling them a degenerate and wild vine. It is in this contrast with the picture of Israel that Jesus declares himself to be the true vine. Israel had become a wild vine with which God was displeased, and Jesus was the true vine that would produce and bear good fruit. Perhaps Jesus stops and stoops down and picks up a branch of the vine that surrounds them as an illustration. And then he begins in verse number one saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them up and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so that you will be my disciples." So for a few moments, Jesus talks quietly with them about the branches and grapes and how a vine dresser cares for the vineyard. Here he reveals to them the secrets of fruitfulness. Jesus now gives his seventh and final I am statement in the Gospel of John. I believe all conversation must have stopped as he made this powerful declaration. Every time Jesus uses the phrase, I am, it conveys the same thought as the covenant name of God, which was given to Moses in the wilderness when God said, I am that I am. So when Jesus said, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection of the life, and I am the vine. Each time, he is identifying another aspect of himself as God in the flesh. But this passage is unique about among the I am statements because it is the basis of an extended parable. First of all, I want you to understand the parable, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So understanding the basis is really not very difficult. There are three essential things that we need to understand and grasp in order to get a picture of what Jesus is talking about. First of all, Jesus is the vine. Now, most of us, when we think of a grapevine, we think about the, the limbs that run along the trestle. But what it is actually being described here is the trunk of that vine, the trunk of the plant where it grows out of the ground. 
It is the trunk that produces the life and the nourishment necessary for the branches. Jesus is a vine. Secondly, the father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser is the person whose responsibility it is to keep the branches healthy and producing the most fruit possible. And third, you and I are the branches. It is the branches that produce the fruit. The vine dresser does whatever is necessary so that each branch will produce as much fruit as possible. So just hours now before his death, Jesus uses this illustration of the vine to show his disciples what God considered important in life, and that is the producing of fruit. Now look with me at the responsibility of the vine dresser. The difficulties begin when we try to interpret some of the phrases that Jesus uses in describing the duties of the vine dresser. And first of all, there is the phrase in verse number two, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. What does Jesus mean when he says that every branch that produces no fruit, he takes away? Well, those who do not believe in security of believer use this verse to support their belief that even true believers can fall away and be lost. The problem in using this verse in that way is that the Bible teaches clearly the security of the believer. Jesus, in presenting himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10, says, I give them eternal life, eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And that is a repetition of what Jesus taught in John chapter 6 and verse 39 when he said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. These and many other passages prove the perseverance of the saints, such as Romans chapter 8, which teaches us that salvation is an eternal matter, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Also, 1 John, which teaches us over and over that we can know and know for certain that we are saved. If one can lose their salvation, it cannot be a work of grace, as it's taught in Ephesians 2, Romans 3, and Titus 3. I think it's worthy of note that if you accept that these, these verses teach that one can lose their salvation, I have to warn you, then it also teaches that when the Father removes them, they can never come back. People who say that the branches are, that are burned refer to Christians who lose their salvation, put themselves in a very difficult position. The burning of the branches would then seem to imply that if you lose your salvation... You can never get it back. But we should be clear that Jesus is referring to the conditions of fruitfulness, not to eternal security. We should not understand the passage to mean that God will remove from the number of the saved those who are not fruitful. Now, if we return to a consideration of the first part of verse 
2, we find that it says, in every branch that is in me. There are plenty of people that are in religion. There are plenty of people that are in the church. But that doesn't mean that they're in Jesus. In verse 3, Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So what does having no fruit have to do with being clean? How does ta- what does takes away have to do with being clean? Some commentators see the answer in how the word take away, era, in the Greek is translated. It can also be translated take up or lift up. This same word is translated in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 20 where the disciples took up 12 baskets of food after the feeding of the 5,000. And it's translated bear when it describes Simon who was forced to carry Christ's cross in Matthew chapter 27. In John, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In none of those cases does the term ever mean cut off, but rather lift up, suggesting the image of a vine dresser leaning over to lift up a branch. Maybe this thought from a modern grower of grapes will help us to understand He says, new branches have a natural tendency to trail down and along the ground, but they don't bear fruit down there. When the branches go along the ground, the leaves get coated in dust, and when it rains, they get muddy and mildewed. The branch becomes sick and useless. The caretaker goes through the vineyard with a bucket of water looking for those branches. He lifts them up. He cleans them off, and then he wraps them around the trellis and ties them up. Pretty soon, they're thriving. I believe that the point is that when the branches fall in the dirt, God does not throw them away or abandon them. He lifts them up, he cleans them off, and he helps them to flourish again. Secondly, he prunes for more fruit. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. God's goal with unfaithful Christians, unfruitful Christians, isn't destruction, but rather restoration. What is involved in pruning? Pain. If necessary, the Lord will use painful measures to cleanse us of sin so that we can live a more abundant life for his glory. The word of God reveals to the believer that God uses discipline or chastening to correct his children. Now, the greatest teaching in the Bible on the subject of discipline is found in Hebrews chapter 12. I'd invite you to turn there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in around verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord 
or be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Now from those verses, we can glean some very important principles. First of all, God is the source of all discipline. And the reason that he disciplines is love. As parents, we understand some things about discipline. Does discipline feel good to the child? No. Is discipline an act of, uncommitted, of committed love? Absolutely. Does Discipline feel good to the father? No. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, gives us the reason that God disciplines his children. Now, no chastening ever seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Unfortunately, because some people have experienced harsh and unloving discipline at the hands of their earthly fathers, they may misinterpret the discipline of God. But God never disciplines out of anger or selfishness. In fact, the writer of Hebrews reveals in chapter 12 and verse 10, For they, that is our parents, indeed chastened us as seemed best to them, but for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. God's action and discipline are intended to move us persistently toward the life and character that we desire as children but cannot attain without his help. God uses corrective measures to correct his children just as a vine dresser takes the measures necessary to correct a wayward branch. And then there's the whole subject of fruit bearing. According to Jesus, here and throughout the Gospels, the mark of those who truly belong to Christ and are saved is the bearing of good fruit. Now, don't misunderstand. We are not saved by good fruit or by good works, but by faith in Christ alone. The presence of fruit, however, is the only visible proof of our profession of faith. Fruit, the presence of fruit, is the only visible proof that our profession of faith is true. It is unfortunately possible to believe in the basic truths of the Christian faith and yet not truly be saved. You know all the right answers to the right questions, but it's in your mind, not in your heart. First of all, we need to understand that bearing fruit is a responsibility. We love to sing that old song, Just As I Am. And of course, it's a wonderful truth. At the point of salvation, 
God does indeed take us as we are. But he will never be content to leave us as we were. Bearing fruit, however, requires a lifelong commitment of work and discipline. No plant casually produces a lot of fruit. Indeed, it's a slow process, a structured process, and a process that occurs only in season. And bearing fruit is a lifelong pursuit. In verse 2, Jesus began to talk about producing fruit. Over the years, many have read that passage and have seen in it a general call for believers to bring other people to faith in Christ. And that's good. But there is no reason to restrict the meaning of fruit only to the winning of souls. A study of fruit and good works in the Bible shows that the terms are almost always interchangeable. For example, Titus chapter 3 verse 14 says, And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. The psalmist says in Psalm 1-3, He, the righteous man, shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. Paul later told the Christians at Ephesus and God, they were created in Christ Jesus for good works. In practical terms then, fruit represents good works, a thought, an attitude, an action of ours that God values because it glorifies him. Now, there are two kinds of fruit. There is inward fruit and outward fruit. You bear inward fruit when you allow God to change your inner nature with new Christ-like qualities that you find in Galatians 5:22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And you bear outward fruit when you allow God to work through your life to bring him glory. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance of every good work. But there are different levels of fruit producing. In the picture that Jesus draws of the different levels of fruit producing, we get a picture of how our life is adding up for God at this moment. Look, if you would, again in verse number 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. So the first stage, level 1, is no fruit. He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, that is Level two is some fruit, no fruit, some fruit. He prunes that it may produce more fruit. So level one, no fruit. Level two, some fruit. Level three, more fruit. And level four, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. 
The question, of course, then becomes how much fruit do you see in your life today? This idea of bearing fruit is some not, it's not some unique phenomenon that is reserved just for the elite Christian, you know, the super saints. It's the destiny of every believer. Believers do not all produce the same quantity of fruit, but they do all produce some fruit. When we get discouraged in our walk and in our work, it's good to find a verse like verse number five, which says to us as believers, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. But how are we to remain or abide in Christ? Well, I think it's essential that we understand that our being kept in the vine is not our task. It is God's. It is his work in us through Christ that keeps us. But having said that, we have a part of remaining. For Jesus says in verse 7, remain in my words. This means more than just keeping a list of do's and don'ts. More than just casually reading your Bible. It means taking God at his word. And every instant of your life, both those that are full of crisis and those that are full of peace. In every moment of your life, relying on and trusting in God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you are the one who keeps us. It's not depending on us keeping ourselves, but upon us trusting that you're keeping us. But we do have a part in bearing fruit that we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. We allow your word to reveal us as we are. And then we're willing to make whatever changes are necessary. Father, help us to realize that you look to us to produce fruit, both inward and outward fruit. Inward change as we moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, seek to be more conformed in the image of our Savior. We become more like Jesus. And outward in that we might show forth good works to the world, not in order that we might be saved, but because we are saved, we want to do your will in this world. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't have an intimate relationship with thee, they don't, they don't know for sure they're saved, and I pray that you'd speak to their hearts. Help them to understand that they are sinners. They cannot save themselves but that you have already done everything necessary for their salvation on the cross of Calvary. I pray that they might repent of their sin, agree with you about their sin, and turn from that sin and ask to be saved, that they can leave this place today knowing they have a relationship with you and they have a place in heaven. And help us, Lord, 
as believers, the desire to produce more fruit for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.